You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading for this evening comes from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that this time would indeed be to the praise of your glory. We pray that you would use uh, this letter of Ephesians to help us see Christ, that you, O Lord Jesus, would be our vision, that you would help us to see you clearly, but that you would be the object of our vision. We pray that you would help us now, a people now gathered under your word, and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This evening is a lower elementary week, so if you are a kindergarten through third grader and you want to head out with other kindergartners through third graders, you can gather right on over here and have a good time together. We now do this every other week, so we're glad for you guys to hang out with one another. Well, it is for sure summertime now. Uh, Things are heating up. There are fireworks popping like every night in my neighborhood. Uh, People are traveling. So many of uh, our folks that are normally with us are not with us this Sunday. Uh, Summer is often a time in which people are looking forward to something. There's like some event usually that you have during the summertime that you've been planning for or looking towards forward to for months. Uh, Several of our young dudes just left yesterday for a trip to Iceland for two weeks. They've been planning that trip for months and months. Uh, I'm going back to the UK tomorrow. Uh, If you've not been with us, if you joined us in the last year, I'm working on a PhD over there. So I've been 
essentially writing a paper uh, for the last two and a half years uh, that I'm going to present at my very first academic conference next Friday. Uh, and I'm, it's like here within five days, which means the likelihood of me peeing my pants at any point in the next five days is increasingly getting larger. Uh, summers are often times for weddings, uh, the culmination of years of relationship building and planning, and all of those things are great and good. Vacations are good. Weddings are good. Conferences are good. We can and should look forward to those things. But do you find yourself being a person who merely just looks forward to things? Meaning like, August can be a terrible time of the year, but at least the fall is coming. Uh, this month can be such a drag at any point in the year you might find you might find yourself thinking, but at least that vacation is coming. My job is so boring, but at least I get a few weeks off at Christmas, the next event, the next milestone, the next event, the next break is like the thing that, you, that keeps you going this week. Well, have I got a book of the Bible for me, <laughs> and I think for all of us. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is about a sure and certain future event, which then transforms every bit of our present, like a coming wedding date that is fixed on the calendar, that then transforms the days and months leading up, like a, a, an engaged couple, now once they get engaged, now thinks, all right, now we've got to find a venue, now we need to send invitations, now we need to start premarital counseling, now we need to actually have a conversation about this, this, and this. We need to combine our bank accounts and on and on and on because of this thing that is happening. Well, like combining people and bank accounts, Ephesians is all about God bringing all things together into unity with Christ and what that actually means for today. So here's a big umbrella statement that I, that I want us to hang all of our thoughts on for the next 14 weeks as we go through this letter together, that God is bringing all things into unity with Christ. God is bringing all things into unity with Christ, and we're going to see that play out in so many ways through this letter, that God brings people into unity with Christ, that God brings realms, heaven and earth, into unity with Christ. God brings people of death into unity with the life of Christ. God brings divided people, Jew and Gentile, into unity with Christ. God brings the entire church as his bride into unity with him. God brings husband and wife together, parents and children together, masters and servants together into unity with Christ. God brings the entire cosmos into unity with Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. So tonight we're going to get through a really, really big chunk. Uh, we absolutely could have spent like one sermon on every verse or even every phrase that you heard James just read. But two reasons for taking this big chunk in one shot here on this first Sunday together. What's well, been said that reading and understanding Paul is like riding a bike. If you go too slow, you'll fall off. And it's, so it's often better to zoom out, zoom out and understand the full argument that Paul is making than to zoom in on one phrase or even one sentence and perhaps lose the forest from the trees. But second and related, Verses 3 through 14, after Paul's initial greeting there, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. He wrote it in one just flowing long sentence. Now, thankfully, our English translators have mercifully provided periods for us to break this up. Uh, but this is like one huge explosion of praise 
from Paul. And so to break it up in sentences or even phrases would be like to go spend like $200 on an enormous firework and then to like cut it up, break it apart, and pour out the individual explosive parts and then light those things on fire one at a time. This thing is supposed to come together and then explode in one huge thing that just makes your eyebrows raise. That's this text that we just heard James read in chapter one. So we're going to think about this one sentence in three sections here tonight. What God gives, what Jesus fulfills, and what the Spirit guarantees. And spoiler alert, the answer to all three of those things is union with Christ. What God gives, union with Christ. What Jesus fulfills, union with Christ. What the Spirit guarantees, union with Christ. So, first of all, what God gives. Here, Right in verse 1, Paul first identifies himself as the writer of this letter, and he addresses the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a a huge metropolitan city in present-day Turkey. When we went through the book of Acts last year, I said that if Rome was kind of like the Washington, D.C. of the Roman Empire, and Corinth was the Miami of the Roman Empire, Ephesus may very well have been the New York City. As well known, this city was for its commerce and for its trade, as well as its enormous temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana of her Roman name, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple, making that temple kind of like the Empire State Building of the Roman world. About a third of a million people, which is a huge amount of people for an ancient city, lived in Ephesus itself, and even more so in the greater region, this entire region surrounding Ephesus was enormously important. Paul spent over two years in this city before he wrote this letter, but it seems like he intended for this letter to be circulated around the entire region, the various churches around the city of Ephesus, not just in the city, because unlike so many of his letters, he doesn't say at the very end of his letter, usually like he wraps up most of his letters, he doesn't say, and also say hi to this person, this person, this person. Give my greetings to him, him, and her, and her, and her. There's none of that at the end of this letter. It seems like he just generally wants to encourage and strengthen the church that is in this region of Turkey. And so the very first thing that he says in verse 3 is just, praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So praise or blessing be to God the Father. And in one verse, God spells out the three persons of the triune God. God the Father, blessed be the God and Father of God the Son, our Lord Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing or literally, with every blessing of the Spirit. So God the Father is to be praised for being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who then blesses us with the blessings of the Spirit. Now, over the next two weeks, we're going to see Paul focus his attention even more into these heavenly places. He has blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. But for now, let's just keep developing this theme of union with Christ. We really got going at that three weeks ago when we thought about the Lord's Supper and this communion table. We're remembering our union with Christ and strengthening our communion with Christ. But two weeks ago, I mentioned that in this one sentence, in Ephesians 1, Paul says the phrase, in Christ or in him, 11 times. 
11 different times in one sentence. And so here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with using language like asking Jesus into your heart. That's biblical language. The biblical language and categories of Christ and you, Christ and us, receiving Jesus, that is good biblical language and good biblical categories. But do you want to know how many times that kind of language, Christ in us, or receiving Christ, how many times that appears in the New Testament? Five times in the whole New Testament. Eleven times here in this one sentence, Paul is talking about us being in Christ. So the overwhelming theology of the New Testament is not whether Christ is in you, but whether you are in Christ. Over 160 times, 164 times in the New Testament of a person being in Christ. Only five of Christ being in a person. So when you are in Christ, when his righteous and perfect life becomes yours, when his suffering and substitutionary death becomes yours by grace, then right now you are taken into Christ. You belong to him. You are united in his life and death and resurrection. Then, when that is true, right now, God the Father then blesses you with every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. Not future, but right now. Now, not blessing of the world given by the Spirit. It's not blessings like money or comfort or health or whatever else we might want that is given by the Spirit. No, but every blessing of the Spirit. Every spiritual blessing of the Spirit is ours right now in Christ Jesus. And what are these blessings? What are the blessings of the Spirit? Well, he's going to tell us through the rest of the sentence. The blessings of the Spirit that he has in mind are things like election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, grace, inheritance, love. And all of this is not just like on a whim that God has for his people. God the Father has not just stumbled into some like new and exciting opportunity. Oh, God the Father observes down on earth. Jesus has just died and been resurrected? What luck? What good news? What, how, can I, how can I use this? What can I do with this new reality? Who might this benefit? No, verse 4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose his people in Jesus. This doesn't mean that maybe just a, a few minutes, just before speaking the universe into existence, God like, hurriedly got his paperwork together, wrote, jotted down a few names or something like that. No, from eternity past, it is God's character and nature to both understand and foreknow, but also it is his character and nature to be gracious, to be merciful, that he would know, in verse 5, predestine those whom he would save. Those among whom the world, in the world, that would reject him, he now sets his mercy and his grace on some. Now, I realize this is a whole can of worms. This is a whole can of worms. In chapter 2, we'll swing back around to this as well. But this is a difficult theological and even philosophical category. I think it is our immediate tendency to read something like this and then to want to make a whole list of reasons why a sentence like this can't actually mean what it's actually saying. Well, if this is true, then are we just robots? If this is true, then is God evil? If this is true, this, 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 and this. So that, that, none of those things can be true, so that's why this sentence isn't saying what it's saying. But the biblical authors actually make no apologies for 
an understanding of a big God doing big things, even in the salvation and forgiveness of individual humans, of individuals that together make a corporate people on whom God has set his mercy and his grace. Just think about it. Even this, is, this has been true in the whole story of the Bible, in the book of Exodus. Israel and Egypt had equally rejected God. They were equal idolaters. God was not obligated to do anything for any of these people who equally hated him, who had rejected him. And yet then God sets his mercy and his grace upon Israel, not because of their goodness, but in spite of it. He doesn't give them the law and then see how it goes, see if they receive him and, receive him and accept him, and then he'll save them. No, he saves them. And then he gives them the law. They still reject him, and he's still saving them, not because of their goodness, but in spite of it. And on this side of the cross, God is not one of many gods that are like standing against the wall at a high school dance, like just hoping and praying to get picked. There's nothing I can do, God is thinking. I hope they pick me. I hope they recognize me as a good God. No, God is the prime mover in the story of the Bible. God is the initiator. Without his initiating love and grace, none of us would have any desire to pick him in the first place. This kind of sovereign, predestinating mercy does not make him evil. It makes him good. It makes him powerful and good and worthy of worship in our salvation or in Paul's words to the praise of his glorious grace. And by the way, all of this is something that I think we just intuitively know anyway. If God was not the initiating author of salvation, then why in the world would we pray for our unbelieving friends and our neighbors? Right? Think about it. Why in the world would we pray for those who are not trusting in the gospel of Jesus? If it is merely up to them to just make a good decision. We know that only God can save and only God can give life and only God can give sight and we trust him to do it. And when he does it, he is so glorious, he is so gracious, he is so merciful, he is so loving. And so he saves so that his people would, verse 7, have redemption. Redemption from bondage, like Israel being bought and brought out by God from slavery. That they would have forgiveness of their sins from their daily and individual trespasses. Their daily and individual false worships and rejections of God. How does this happen? Well, we have redemption through his blood. Just as Israel had redemption through the shed blood of the Passover lamb, we have redemption through the shed blood of the lamb of God. When his people come and place themselves under him, trusting that there is only death apart from this shed blood of Christ who has died on my behalf so that I would not die when we are in him. And even better, not just redemption, not just forgiveness, but adoption as sons in love, verse 5. He predestined us to go to heaven. Is that what Paul says? In love, he predestined us to go to heaven? No. In love, he predestined us to go to church? No, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
And here, the beloved, Paul is almost certainly referring to Jesus' identity, the one whom God the Father declared from heaven, this is my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. So that then, now through Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, God then, for those who are, who are united to him in his sonship, God then adopts in millions and millions of others sons and daughters in the beloved, in Jesus, the perfect and true and right son of God, so that he might now say, there is my beloved, Patrick, in whom I am well pleased, my beloved Danielle, my daughter in whom I am well pleased. He is pleased with his adopted sons and daughters because he is first pleased with the son of God, the Lord Jesus by whom and in whom and through whom we are adopted as sons and daughters in the beloved. And remember, in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Adoption, full of it. Full adoption. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I think we can edit that verse in our minds when we read it. Blessed be the God, the Father, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with many spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, who has blessed us with some spiritual blessings, who has blessed us with a handful of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's not what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all of them, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or in the verse 7 according to the riches of his grace with which or which he sprinkled on, upon us which he poured on us no which he lavished upon us upon us like tsunami of grace with which he lavished upon us is god stingy no do we think he is yes does God withhold our spiritual good and does he withhold spiritual blessing? No, he lavishes grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Unlike the Old Testament people of God who received the forgiveness of their trespasses on credit cards, they're given a visa, they're given an American Express, each and every year they would swipe the credit card of the sacrificial system awaiting a day of full and final payment to have it paid off. They had to keep paying the minimum. It was good enough. It was good enough. It's what was required. But it wasn't paying anything off. It didn't accomplish fullness either. God had set apart and designated his Old Testament people as a kingdom of priests to be set apart as holy and as a consecrated people for God's service. And yet only one tribe, only one tribe, the Levites, could work the tabernacle and the later temple system. And then only one person from that one tribe, the high priest, one person, the high priest was able to enter into the full and uninhibited presence of God. The realm of every spiritual blessing, one person. But now, in Christ, he has brought his people in, into the holy places, the heavenly places. He has brought all of his people in. Just think about all of the plural language that Paul is using. We, us, our, 
all of these things, not just one person, but the people of God into the holy places, the place of God's presence with full and unhindered blessing. This is Leviticus stuff, like turn to 11. What Leviticus was always meant to be and pointing toward. And now all of God's people are set apart for his service for what? Well, that they should be holy and blameless before him. His love, his forgiveness, his redemption does something. It creates a people, which we'll see more in chapter 2, and then actually throughout the rest of the book. His love, his forgiveness, his redemption all creates a new people that ought to be living lives of holiness, of blamelessness for his worship, for his glory, for their joy, for the clarity of his character to the world. No longer working on credit, awaiting a future payment, but on debit from an endless, full account of every spiritual blessing. He has given his children a debit card that they might ongoingly come to the ATM of grace and swipe and swipe and swipe. I've not been holy this week. Come and swipe. More grace for you. I have not been blameless this morning. Swipe with grace that is lavished upon you. Every spiritual blessing that is yours in Christ Jesus. I think I can tend toward thinking that I can only come to God's grace to swipe if I've earned it this week. I can come to God if I've earned it this week, but that is not grace, is it? That is just earning your paycheck. I can tend toward thinking that uh, I know that God wants to give me, lavish upon me grace and love, and I know that he wants me to come and withdraw freely that I might have like the nicest, fanciest steak dinner in all of Albuquerque. Come and take and eat, but instead uh, I'll just withdraw like six or seven bucks for some Taco Bell. Just to keep me alive, but not to enjoy. Now again, we're not talking about actual money here. Oftentimes, as maybe we'll see in chapter two, with the powers of this world, sometimes financial growth may not be a blessing. It may be a test of whether we will or will not love God for who he is rather than what he can merely give us. But if God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and he wants us to withdraw and withdraw and withdraw, then God says in Isaiah 55, come, come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Swipe the debit card of grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Swipe enjoy the redemption, the forgiveness, the love, the adoption, the belonging that is yours in the beloved. Come by wine and milk with, without money and without price. He asks in Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your money on Taco Bell? I'm giving you a feast here. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to, diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. This is Paul's message too, that every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places is yours now. Delight yourselves in God and who he is. Delight yourself in who you are as a Christian in Christ. So all of this is what God gives. 
He gives love. He gives grace. He gives forgiveness. He gives redemption. He gives adoption. He gives blessing. He gives himself. He gives union with Jesus. He has given us Jesus that we might be given to him with a new purpose, with a new usefulness, as tools for his kingdom, as sons and daughters for his family, as a people for the temple of his cosmos, a holy and blameless people. So if that's what God gives, now what does Jesus fulfill? What Jesus fulfills. We've already hit on this, but if verse 10 is the main argument for this sermon, and I think perhaps even the like title thesis statement for the entire letter, let's get back on the on-ramp a bit and then camp out in verse 10 for a couple of minutes. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth, or things on earth. So, what in the world is this mystery of his will stuff? He'll use a similar phrase in chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul's going to say that his entire ministry is meant to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. A mystery isn't something that is intentionally hidden away so that no one will ever understand. Think about how we just use the word mystery for like a mystery novel. The point of a mystery novel is not so that no one will ever understand. No, it's just that things are partially and progressively revealed so that the story might find a culminating climax of revelation, of exposing, of understanding. So what is this mystery? Well, here in chapter 1, Paul says that it is a plan set forth in Christ for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. And elsewhere, if we put all the other places in Paul's letter where he talks about this revealed mystery or even just the places of confusion in the gospel accounts or in the book of Acts where things were confusing but then made clear, we might say that the mystery is the uniting of Jew and Gentile, the uniting of heavenly worlds and earthly realities. So in Acts 1, after the resurrection, in Acts 1, just before the ascension, but after the resurrection, the disciples are asking Jesus when he will restore the kingdom to the Jews. I think the subtext there is kind of like eye-rolling of Jesus. You got to be kidding me. Seriously, you're asking that question still. Or in Acts 10, after Pentecost, Peter needs a vision from heaven to help him understand that social and ethnic dividing lines have now been obliterated in Jesus. The mystery is slowly being revealed through the narrative chapters of Acts. Sam Renahan, in his excellent book, The Mystery of Christ, says that all people, both Jew and Gentile, would be asking this question. Here's the mystery of Christ. How is a resurrected Jewish Messiah who gathers a people from all the world, irrespective of, irrespective of Jewish descent or obedience to Jewish laws, how is that resurrected Jewish Messiah the natural fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures and religion? How can a Jewish Messiah be the fulfillment of all the scriptures if, they are, if, if he's claiming to be the Messiah of 
the whole world, people who are Jewish or not Jewish? Well, the answer to that question is the next five and a half chapters of the letter of Ephesians. How in the world is an itinerant Jewish teacher who was shamefully executed by the Romans in humiliation, how is that person the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures? And how in the world is he able to gather a people from across all ethnic and cultural dividing lines to himself, even if they didn't or weren't Jewish in the first place? Well, again, keep reading Ephesians and join us over the next 14 weeks or so. But here's what I want us to begin to hang our thoughts on for this book, and indeed even hang our thoughts on for the rest of our lives. God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ. I think we can tend toward thinking that this world and this universe is just so disordered, is just simply chaos. That God may actually be the kind of like watchmaker God who could design a really complex and amazing watch and then he wound it up and then he let it go and now he is just standing back and watching. And just as watches get old and then start to break down and then go really bad, this world is now going really bad. Or maybe even less ordered than that. Maybe even less ordered than a watch. Maybe it's like God, when he's creating this universe, when he's putting our lives together, he like went to a park and put a bunch of army men or dolls up on a merry-go-round and then spun the thing. That's the way our lives sometimes feel. And all of us are now just flying outwardly into chaos. Governments, economies, armies, ethics, the world is just flying out into chaos. But this is not reality. The story of the universe and the history of redemption is actually not outwardly flying disordered chaos. Though it may look like it, it is not. It is actually not moving outward. History and the cosmos are actually moving inward to a unifying focal point. This world and even your life is not a merry-go-round, but is more like one of those quarter funnels at the mall. Can you guys remember these things when we went to the mall? Uh, or kids, have you ever seen a quarter funnel where you drop a quarter in this giant plastic funnel and then it spins around and spins around and spins around? This is more like the universe is. Everything is moving inward toward Jesus Christ. It might look like chaos, sometimes looking and feeling like a crowded momentum building chaos. When you drop like 50 quarters on that thing, it can get crazy real fast. And that sometimes is our life. But there will be resolution. There will be settled peace and rest. Endless, settled rest. Not endless outward chaos, but a unifying focal point of all of time and history. God is bringing all things together into unity with Christ to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All people of all of the cosmos, of all time and all of history, are being eventually united to him. Now we'll work out what that means with some nuance over the next many weeks. But here's the thing. Our lives really matter. 
like really matter. God, through Christ and in his spirit, has given us redemption in his blood, we thought about, we reflected on. He has given us individuals the forgiveness of our trespasses, not just sin generally as some like evil force out there in the universe, but actual sins he has forgiven his people of. He predestines and adopts individual sons and daughters to himself through Jesus Christ. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows all of us, all of his children by name. He knows us more deeply than we know ourselves. And all of this makes his children cosmically significant. That the God of heaven and earth calls individuals to himself. And as we'll see, he gives them his spirit. He puts his seal on them. But guys, while all of that is true, we are so cosmically insignificant. You are cosmically insignificant. God knows, he sees, he cares for your individual worries, for your individual fears and anxieties, full stop. Let your requests be made known to him, Paul says in Philippians 4. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But Paul doesn't wait to hear and listen and get to know every single person's story that might possibly one day read this letter. He's not being insensitive to the real pain and trauma and loss that many Ephesians would have undoubtedly experienced, just like all humans have experienced, but certainly so in this pre-modern first century Roman world, just death and loss and injustice everywhere. Every human surrounded by it, experiencing it daily. And all of that's true. But Paul says, in the midst of all this death and loss and injustice, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, you are significant because you belong to God. Your life matters, but your story is Christ's story. You are significant, but a very small side and supporting character to his story. Again, Paul's overwhelming concern is not whether Christ is in you, but whether you are in Christ. I think when I was a kid, like such an emphasis was put on me asking Jesus into my heart or me receiving Christ that like I literally thought when I was a kid that when I would ask Jesus into my heart, that Jesus, like, somehow from heaven would, like, ant-man himself into my heart. Like, I literally thought Jesus, small, tiny little Jesus, like, one-inch Jesus, lived inside me. But you guys, ant-man Jesus is not the Jesus of Ephesians 1.21, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is not something or someone that you add to your already decent life. A supplement, if and when you decide that you want an upgrade in your life for whatever reason. Well, you're not happy here? Ask Jesus into your heart. You want this? Ask Jesus into your heart. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, ask Jesus into your heart. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of time, of the entire human race, of all of creation, and of the entire cosmos. He does not enter your life, you enter his. You do not invite him into your story, he invites you into his. Oh, praise the name 
of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. For endless days we will sing his praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. We enter into his story. History and the cosmos is coming into a focal point. The man, Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, there is this mystery revealed that this itinerant preacher, the one who is executed in humiliation, is actually the God-man. The perfect union between God and man. What Jesus fulfills is union with him for every nation of the world, for the entire cosmos to be united to him. That he is the gravitational center of the universe around which we all revolve. All of time, all of history, every single human revolves around him. And the sooner that we can understand this and actively then remember this, the freer our lives become. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst, midst of doubt or anxiety or even sin, when our lives, when we remember that our lives are around the most glorious thing in the universe, the more joyful, the more worshipful our lives will become. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amazing. All right, I've given myself such little time on these last four verses, but luckily there is still so much more on the Spirit, who the Spirit is, what the Spirit accomplishes through the rest of this book, but let's just wrap this up. Having now considered what God gives, union with Christ, and what Jesus fulfills, union with Christ, now what the Spirit guarantees, union with Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." In the Old Testament, the inheritance of Israel was almost always the land. The land where they might dwell in peace with God, that would be their inheritance, a place, a land. But Abraham and Sarah, who received the first promise of a land with God, Hebrews eleven sixteen says, even them, the first inheritors of this inheritance, even they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There is an inheritance to come, a place, the city of God in which all of his people will finally and fully live in peace, peace under their king, peace of having been fully united to each other as they are united to him. This is what we await, this inheritance of dwelling with God. But until then, and now on this side of the cross, Paul says that God has sealed them, his children, his people, with the promised Holy Spirit. He makes them his own. He seals them. Now, I think I kind of always understood this verse, this word, sealing, uh, like he would seal them shut. Kind of like by giving his spirit, he seals his people fully and finally. Kind of like you seal an envelope, closes them up. But really this word is less like closing up and more like how a shipping company puts a seal on a crate or how a cattle rancher puts a seal on his cow 
He marks what belongs to him. And it's in that sense that verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You belong to him, that everything that was promised is coming true. In him, those who have given their lives to this king of heaven and earth, who have come to him for forgiveness and grace and love, he seals. He marks us his own. We are not our own, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself any longer. You belong to someone else, and the price of his own son is what bought you. The seal of the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, of dwelling with God, the inheritance of the firstborn. As we'll see next week, reigning alongside our older brother, the high king of heaven and earth. This is what we belong to, the inheritance which we will have of reigning and dwelling with God. And it's absolutely true that what God's people will receive is actually a true and real reason for future hope. That we will get full and final peace. We will get God. But here's the thing. The inheritance moves in the other direction as well. We get God. We get a dwelling place with him. But when Paul says that the Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, another English translation of that, maybe in some of your Bibles, is a down payment. And if God is the one giving the Spirit as a down payment, and if we are the ones receiving a down payment, just think about who gives the down payment and who receives a down payment on the purchase of a new car. If God is the one giving the down payment, and if God is the one making the down payment, then he's the one who is buying something, right? He is the one that will receive something. And what is he paying for? What is he buying? He's buying his people. In Exodus, he redeems his people as his own possession. And then throughout the Old Testament, we, still, we, see, we see even further that God is making them his own. On the other side of the cross, Peter calls the united Jew and Gentile church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He has bought them. And so God, by giving of the Spirit, is now making the down payment of a future full and final purchase, a people of his own possession to the praise of his glorious grace. And so this is where we find ourselves, a redeemed people. A redeemed people of God still awaiting our full and final union with Jesus, of fully and finally belonging to him. When Jesus has united those two earthly and heavenly realms, when he will even further unite God and man by the elimination of sin, his people now fully wrapped into the triune life of God, and so we praise him for what he has done, according to the purpose of the praise of his glory. And we praise him for what he is doing, uniting his people to himself and to each other to the praise of his glory. And we praise him for what he will do, uniting the cosmos to himself, including his people into his very life, to the praise of his glory. God the Father gives us union with the Son. God the Son fulfills union in himself. And God the Spirit guarantees a future and further union within the triune God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of his glorious grace. I'm real excited about this book for the rest of this 
six chapters or so. What I told you last week is just read this a lot. Keep doing it. Keep reading this whole book. You can read the whole thing in about 20 minutes. Uh, do that a bunch of times. I guarantee you, you'll start to see things and words will unlock themselves, not in some mysterious way. Maybe though, by the Spirit uh, working and giving you insight. Having next week, as we'll see, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That can happen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.